Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's turned four o'clock and it is now time for Tuesday Home Time. It's Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until six this evening. Today we'll be hearing about Clary O'Shea and the penal powers. It's the 50th anniversary of the jailing of Clary O'Shea and the reaction to it from the union movement and civil society regarding the penal laws. Commentary on current affairs worldwide and Australia by Joan Coxidge. Part two of the interview with peace activist Dale Hess and an invitation to the launch next week of the book High Voltage Women and I'll be speaking with Debbie Brennan. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A weak jam and it looks like good news despite what looks like sad, oh how sad, sad news with no response to my request last week if anyone could come up with a third possibility other than caring business class party big supremo scuttled them more lash son or socialist party supremo and would be big supremo little Billy Shorten ambition in their lots after Saturday but then the good news from an unlikely source no less an authority than the caring business class election spokesperson Simon Boringman who told us we faced quote a stark choice so Simon has obviously uncovered a third possibility what a relief to scuttle them and little Billy's credit didn't the campaign hit dizzy heights at the weekend I, I gained new respect for scuttle them when I discovered he is a mother's son a wife's husband and two daughters father what a man. That seemed to be the highlight of his campaign launch and certainly a guaranteed vote winner. Although given it was the launch, apparently what he's been doing ever since uh, slipping the knife into former big supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull's back, and especially for the past three weeks, was not campaigning. Little Billy got the jump. He started campaigning a week earlier. As a photo yesterday of him hugging his um, his dear little family said, Scuttle them shared an emotional moment. I'm sure the dear little families he's kept locked up for years and intends never to never to not lock up would have shared his emotion and realised how they've misjudged him. He loves dear little families. They would have chorused. Despite Cuddle Them and Little Billy having shared the same compassionate lock em up for the life policy, Little Billy also got the jump on Scuttle Them and introducing a touch of even more humanity to no proper papers queue jumping illegal boat people policy for those on Manus Island. If they don't like where they are, he would happily and compassionately offer to transfer them to some other place in Papua New Guinea. Doesn't that highlight the stark choice about which Simon Boringham was talking? And doesn't it show how we've got over regarding PNG as a colony? 
Last week, following the U.S. of the U.N. Uh, the U.N. of this case, sorry, the U.N. of the U.S. of the U.N. of the World report that one million species are in danger of extinction over and above those we've already got rid of, thanks to us, the human species, with uh, True Blue Aussie proudly holding the world record, but made the sensible observation it's their own fault if they get between a great caring corporation and a bag of money. For instance, the Western Trubler was a uranium mine approved along with the Adani mine a day before the election was called by the Environment Minister who doesn't believe in climate change and clearly also doesn't believe in the environment after the corporation said it could not guarantee it would not render these endangered little creatures living in the groundwater extinct, prompting the Minister... Melissa, they pay the price to hand over the approval because the company just has to use mega, mega litres of the groundwater and given we all know the soaring cost of our domestic water bills, it's heartwarming to know the miner will be given the water as a gift from all of us for which the shareholders must be so grateful. So long as the groundwater survives, which would at least be longer than the creatures, insignificant creatures, let's face it, now living in it. Oh, and we noted last week those who rely on the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin to inform them of all they need to know to expand their knowledge would not know that UNOP report into a million species in danger of extinction even exists. Well, this week, they still don't. Many of those critically endangered species would be affected by the other report this week, also too insignificant for Lord Rupert to report that only a small number of the world's longest rivers are still free-flowing. Anyway, it won't matter. For those who value the delicate flower that is the economy know we can't afford to save the planet anyway, so we're all endangered. Therefore, as the deep political philosophy and intellectual debate that is the stuff of the election campaign absorbs our minds, the caring business class caring for all of us recognise that truth, that reality. If we can't afford to save the planet, there's no need for irresponsible policies, irresponsible, very expensive, profit-sapping policies to address climate change. If there is such a thing as climate change, when if there is, it's going to destroy the planet anyway. Hence the Capitalist Review P1 headline, Business Jitters Over Shorten Ambition Win. Business is anxious about a likely shortened ambition socialist government due to uncertainty about its union-friendly industrial relations agenda and a high 45% emissions reduction target. Exactly. Why have any reduction target, costly, costly reduction target, if we're all doomed anyway? And why waste profits on workers if they won't be around long enough to enjoy the wages they steal from their caring employers? Or waste profits on safety measures, for instance, if those workers are also doomed anyway? For the record, the caring employers listed those potential socialist front benches they regard as, quote, having a good working relationship with business, end of, who might bring a bit of sense into these threatening policies, and I won't give them a week that was name. Chris Bowen, Mark Butler, Jim Chalmers, Anthony Albanese, Penny Wong. Perhaps there's some relief for the poor dears that, that Butler will be in charge of climate policy.
Related to that, we keep pointing out that when the media offered, um, referred to union boss, it's bad, 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 pejorative, pejorative, unlike caring business class boss. Good, 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 praise, praise. But the only slightly encouraging hope is that when little Billy was a union boss, those who know how evil union bosses are never referred to him in evil or pejorative terms. We can but hope that wasn't part of his long-term plan to destroy the greatest little economic order of them all. Sunday, little Billy accused Scuttlebem of lacking vision, uh, which means you do have vision, little Billy. Certainly an exciting vision, uh, which is, I have a vision of living in the lodge and living at Kirribilli. Little Billy at Kirribilli. <laughs> yes, very good, very good. But I was thinking more, though, of a, a vision for the country. I just told you. Then again, Scuttle then came up with a vision that uh, first home buyers would be able to enjoy their first home thanks to a 500 million government scheme. Scuttle then noticed the banks have reacted to Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission criticism that they were lending to people while rorting their capacity to repay. And that's why the government will accept the risk. Uh, what, to, to punish the banks for years of ripping off, uh, well, ripping off over and above normal ripping off. Uh, that's why the banks need to be taught a lesson. Uh, yes, I can only imagine how shattered they'll be that we, the public, are taking the risks and they're left with nothing more than the profits. They're just getting what they deserve. Uh, 500 million for private housing. I imagine there's lots more for public housing given the massive, much greater need. We do not believe in socialism, which only leads to greater need which is as dishonest a denial of his intentions as little Billy's surreptitious threat to capitalism, exposed by Lord Rupert's usual suspect, bolt-through-the-head columnist, who declared Scuttlebem's policy proved we now live in a socialist society. Capitalism is dead, which, apart from anything else, says heaps about the usual suspect's intelligence, or, more correctly, lack of. If only it were as simple as an arch-conservative refugee hater helping hand profits to the banks, although, on the other hand, bolt through the head's concern might be well placed, for little Billy immediately came out and said he would adopt the same socialist policy. Never one to miss an opportunity, the bank's response is they'll have to raise interest rates to offset the risk the government's taking. Asked whether he still believes homosexuality and same-sex marriage are grievous sins bringing tears to the eyes of the dear baby Jesus, Scuttle them said, I don't mix my religion with politics. And we reckon that's the only thing on which those refugees he hates would agree with him, although just maybe that policy doesn't conflict with his religion. Back in Fitzroy, the sorry cops, paramilitary kill with a little finger cops, raided a shop residence, the wrong shop residence, and arrested a suspect who wasn't the suspect, the wrong bloke, who ended up in hospital with serious injuries. But he soon felt a lot better when the coppers apologised and admitted their mistake. Oh, sorry, sorry, we, we bashed the wrong bloke. We sought a comment from our very own week that was police spokesperson Senior Sergeant Bernie O'Pig. Uh, like you know, like, like you know, like you know. Uh, thank you, Senior Sergeant O'Pig, lucid as ever. 
there's this ad running with a young woman and a young man in boring civilian life envisaging making a difference as they dream of the fun, fun, fun life of... Of bashing, framing, tasering, spraying with chemicals, shooting, sharpening the boots, plus all the deep and meaningful conversations with your co-workers. All the advantages of making a difference. Speaking of which, also notice our train killers had this new recruitment ad aimed at young women with the slogan, Do what you love. But for some reason they left out the punchline. Do what you love, kill people. Must have assumed we'd all know. Finally, all we can do is enjoy our only election night enjoyment, watching the loser lose. Good afternoon. And that was Mr Kevin Healy with his week, that was. And as I say most weeks, it's nine o'clock tomorrow morning for the early risers. He hops on his bike about eight o'clock, if he's lucky, and toddles down to 3CR on his bike and hopefully not get run over to present city limits till 10 o'clock and then does it all again but that's by the by now the radiothon is coming up it's by my reckoning the program for Tuesday home time will be the 11th of June which today is four weeks from today The 3CR Radiothon is fast approaching. And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio. That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019 June the 3rd to the 16th Power Radical Radio This week marks the 50th anniversary of what has become known as the Great Clary O'Shea and Penal Power Struggle You're invited to celebrate and learn tomorrow night at the Newport substation next to the Newport railway station. It's co-hosted by Spirit of Eureka and the Rail, Tram and Bus Union. To find out more, I spoke with Shirley Winton from Spirit of Eureka and asked her first about Clary O'Shea. Who was he and what was his background? Clary O'Shea was the secretary of the Tramways Union in Victoria for about 40 years. He was born in Tasmania, working class family. They moved to Victoria, his dad looking for work. I think that was early 20th century, 1910 or something. They moved to Victoria to Gippsland. Clary left school fairly early so he could help to support his family, his mum and dad and I think he had three siblings, had various jobs, and then he got a job on the on the tramways. And since that time, I think he would have been in his 20s, mid-20s, late-20s, when he started work with the tramways. Um, and since then, he was worked as a tram conductor, and he was very active in the union. He was a shop steward for a long time. 
Um, and then he was voted on on the executive of the Tramways Union, and then for many years he was the secretary of the Tramways Union. Clary has a very strong background in working class struggle. His roots are very much in working class, in, in life of, of workers. He was involved in the day-to-day battles that, you know, working class people, particularly during the, the Depression, were involved in. So he's very, very much grounded in working class struggle. Clary, over the years, developed enormous amount of respect from his members, the union members, and also more widely in the amongst the organised working class, amongst other unions, because of his absolute dedication to workers, working class struggles, to workers' struggles. He also joined the Communist Party in the. He was in the ALP. He firstly joined the ALP and became quite disillusioned. And then, I think it was in the early 1930s that he joined the Australian Communist Party or the Communist Party of Australia. And he had been a member of that for the rest of his life. He was one of the vice chairman of the Communist Party of Australia, Marxist Leninist, in the late 60s during the penal powers dispute struggle. How far back do we need to go to get an understanding of why this biggest strike at that time since World War II took place? What were the general conditions for workers at that time, particularly in his union? And what was the, what were the laws governing workers? I was just probably go a little bit even further after, from what I understand, after, after World, World War II, there was um, quite an upsurge of working class struggle. And, you know, that, that was evident, exemplified with the miners' strike in 1949, was it 49 or 48? So the militancy was very strong amongst unions, was very strong after the war. Unions were very well organised. Most workers were in, in unions, so there was high-density union membership. In the 1980s, there was also... I mean, this is sort of going political before I'm going to the economic aspect. Early 1950s, there was an attempt to ban the Communist Party in 1951, the Menzies Liberal government held a referendum to ban the Communist Party, which was defeated, soundly defeated. Part of the, or one of the main reasons for this referendum was to curtail the union militancy. So the Menzies Liberal government was hoping that by banning the Communist Party, they could crush unions and crush workers' militancy. That did not succeed voted down or the referendum uh, rejected to the laws to ban the Communist Party. So the Menzies government then turned to introducing legislation to, to curtail unions. That legislation started in the early 1950s, I think from 1953, and that was the beginning of the penal powers. So between 1952-53, right through to 1956 and beyond, the government was bringing in, had brought in quite oppressive, restrictive penal powers which penalised unions for taking industrial action, which before was never heard of. Strikes were never legal in Australia, but workers, for decades, ignored that and took industrial action. The penal powers that were being brought in from the early 1950s were designed to, to punish 
unions and to crush unions by imposing very hefty fine on industrial action. So from about 1955-56, the unions, and that, that includes the ACTU and Trade and Labor Council, passed resolutions calling on the abolition of the penal power. So you have that period in the, between 1950 and 1969 where there was a lot of time was put into... I suppose raising awareness, consciousness about the penal powers and the necessity to break them. Now, in that period, workers or unions found it very difficult to take to take industrial action to withdraw their labour or even have stop work meetings, things like that, to pursue increase in wages and conditions. So they didn't have the right to strike, which meant that they were constantly penalised and there were um, the fines imposing them ran into millions of dollars. Some unions paid the fine and others didn't and the tramways union decided not to pay the fine. In that period in the 1960s it was also the economic conditions for the working class in particular were not easy. So even though there was, I mean there's a bit of a controversy of whether there was a high unemployment or, or full employment or you know low levels of unemployment, but there was a sense that the conditions, the economic conditions of workers were falling behind the the cost of living and falling behind and a lot of, for instance, in families, the wages which in the 1950s were sufficient or workers' wages or one wage was sufficient to cover the cost of a family no longer able to to meet the, the cost. There's a lot of concerns that, about the rising cost of living and at the same time there's difficulty to pursue an increase in wages. Were the conditions for tramway and bus workers particularly bad? There are battles on the tramway and bus buses right throughout. You know, tram and bus workers, from what I understand, their conditions were, they weren't getting good wages. They, they weren't. You know, they were sort of in the, at the lower level of wages for workers because in, that, in those days they were regarded as unskilled workers compared to, to industries like the, the metals, which had fairly reasonable, I understand, fairly reasonable wages. So the, the conditions for tram and bus workers is that the wages were quite low. The conditions were really were not good at all. They were fighting for penalties for working overtime. They also had, and I, I used to know somebody who was, worked on the tramway, and they used to have what's called broken shifts. So you'd come in at 6 o'clock, you work for four hours, then you'd go off and come back at 2 or 3 in the afternoon and then work for another four hours. The fact that they were broken shifts meant that the conditions they were really bad working conditions for workers, but there was no penalty, no compensation for broken shifts. And workers used to complain about that because it just completely disrupted their, their, their lives. Were women also working as conductors? Women were only working as conductors, they were not working as drivers. Clary, I've read a bit of material on that. Clary was very much in favour of women drivers. There was in the 50s there was resistance by men drivers to women taking on the positions as drivers. 
One of the reasons was because there was no equal pay and that the, the argument was that once you give women driving positions or then um, that will suppress the wages of all drivers, men and women. Clary was very strongly in favour of, obviously, of um, women drivers, but also equal pay, equal pay for, for women. He argued he put that position very strongly to his members, but in the 1950s, I was reading somewhere that there was a meeting of, um, of members and that was on the, on the agenda discussion of women drivers. There was concern expressed and resistance by the male tram drivers to, for women to take on the, the driving position. All that, of course, after the 1969, all that had changed. And I think that it was largely through those 10 years of preparation to take on the penal powers, the enormous amount of education that was done by Clary Union and also uh, union officials, by other trade unionists, the 28 rebel unions, by communists in the in the movement to remove the penal powers, all that had contributed towards raising awareness and consciousness about the necessity to include women as drivers. You mentioned that other unions had been fined as well and had paid their fines. How many other unions apart from Clary's Union also didn't pay the fines that they got? There was a, a, a pattern that pretty much dependent on individual unions. So the Food Preservers Union, for instance, they would pay some fines and wouldn't pay other fines. The metal metal trades would also refuse to pay some fines and some and didn't. The warfare similar with the warfare. So we're talking about the militant unions. I should say that the ACTU, Victorian Trades Hall and some of the Trades and Labor Council were opposed to the strategy of not paying the fine. Their view was that they should put pressure on the court, they should put pressure on the ALP and and do it all, all through Parliament. When Clary was thrown into jail, they were totally opposed to that tactic and some of them were urging urging members, union members, not to go out on strike. And in spite of that, there were thousands that defied their union directives, their union officials' directives, and, and went on strike. And they include as far as in Kalgoorlie, where the local union, like a Trades and Labor Council, was urging um, workers not to take any industrial action, not to strike, and they were ignored. And workers went out, and similarly in the Pilbara. And that was an indication of the level of, or the depth of consciousness and understanding by the rank and file of the importance of, absolute importance to break the shackles of their penal powers. And it wasn't, as Clara was saying, it wasn't just about, in one of his statements, he said it wasn't just about an economic issue, the, the, the fight against the penal powers. It was about the right to strike, it was about democratic rights of workers to struggle, the right to struggle, the right to fight. Just go back one step, what was the role of the groupers in this? The groupers were quite strong in 19, from 1956 and my understanding is that they were totally opposed to this. Like within, within the DLP, I mean DLP was a funny mixture, so some of the DLP rank and file members they were actually militant, militant workers themselves. 
But the leadership of the groupers was totally opposed to the action that Clary O'Shea and others took. And I should say that there were huge battles in the Victorian trade hall, the executive that Clary was involved in about the strategies to smash the penal powers. And that was one of the reasons that the 28 rebel unions had stopped paying the fees to the trade hall, Victorian trade hall, and disaffiliated themselves from it. What's been written about the few days prior to him going to court and what actually happened in the court? I'll just go one step back and just just to say that the 15th to 21st strike and industrial action, that was a culmination of 10 years of preparation by unions, by militant unions by Clary, by communists, some, you know, some of the most militant workers. So in many ways, those five or six days was the, the final chapter of the penal power struggle because of the amount of work that had gone, and some of it quite complicated, that had gone into preparing Australian workers to take on the powers and smash them and to, you know, abolish them. And one of the key aspects of that preparation was a really educating, informing workers about the penal powers. And this was to the extent of every, and I remember Ted Bull was, uh, used to say that every executive meeting, members meeting, delegates meeting, mass meeting, penal powers was a, stand, was a standing agenda item. And someone would always get up, start a, a discussion you know, give a talk on why it was necessary to, to kill off the, the penal powers, why workers need to to push back the penal powers. There was that, and the other aspect is that was widely talked about was the danger of solely re- relying on the courts and on Parliament to have the, the penal powers abolished. And that was, that was one of the key aspects that Clary was vigorously arguing or promoting is that the need for mass mobilisation at the grassroots, and that this is the only this is the only action that will help them to win today. The other the strategies, the legal strategies of Parliament, were put forward as a secondary line of struggle. But the primary is to rely on on the power of united and you know organised working class. I think it was it would have been about in 19 my understanding 1965 maybe 66, after nearly 10 years of the ACTU making statements about, you know, the penal powers are bad, you know, we've got to put more pressure on the government, we've got to send more deputations to the government and put um, fancy arguments in the court. They all uh, turned out to be quite fruitless. It was then decided that they had to be really taken on. And it was, I think it was then and not long afterwards that Clary said, well, somebody's got to do it and I will do it, which is refuse to, totally refuse to pay the fines, refuse to answer questions about the union books, account books, and the possibility that he would be charged with contempt of court and possibly thrown in, in jail. So that was a, a conscious strategy. So in that period, the couple of years before, before Clary fronted up to the court on, on 15th of May, they were having a lot of advice. The Clary and other unions, the militant unions, were receiving a lot of advice from, from people like 
Lionel Murphy, who later became the Attorney General in the Whitlam government, and also Ted Hill, who was at that time was the Chairman of the Communist Party of Australia, Marcus Lenders, and then and there were others that are, like Jack Lazarus and various other Cedric Welch. They were progressive lawyers at the time. They were helping the unions and Clary O'Shea, the Tramways Union, working out a, a strategy from a legal point of view. But they all were saying that that in itself is not going to get um, moved the, or shift the government or the courts, that it's got to be, again, mass mobilisation. What was the position of the Labor Party at this, over those years? Well, this, well, my understanding is that the Labor Party was opposed to, to the action that Clary took, or the action of, of the 27 rebel union. Their position was same, probably, as the ACTU, and there were other unions too who opposed the confronting the penal power. I think that they're probably, within the ALP, there would have been individual rank-and-file members. They'll be very supportive members of those 27 rebel unions, many of them were members of the ALP, and they would have entitled support in, in the strategy. Well, they would have been part of devising that strategy. When it was agreed on the strategy, Clary from, from the, I think from January, early 1969, he was being summoned to court. He did not respond. He refused to front up to the court, and he went into hiding. And whilst he was in hiding, the union funds were being dispersed amongst various places, including some of the unions, and also in a, um, a large locked metal box, which was interstate and, and buried on a farm somewhere. I mean, that's the extent, you know. I mean, they really had a, a real take, a handle on to what lengths the, you know, the courts and the state would go to to crush the unions, particularly the militant unions. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. I'm Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Shirley Winton from Spirit of Eureka and the topic is the 50th anniversary of what became known as the Great Clary O'Shea and Penal Powers Struggle. The judge was John Kerr. The, the judge, uh, the presiding judge who sentenced Clary O'Shea, he was uh, at that time, that was John Kerr, and John Kerr is infamous for probably, what was it, six years later, he became the Governor-General of Australia and conspired or implemented or executed the scheme to dismiss the Whitlam government. He's obviously got a history. And I have got a, a, a quote from Clary somewhere saying why he refused, you know, in court, saying that he refused to answer questions because he was charged with contempt or John Kerr charged him with contempt for refusing to answer questions in, and refused to hand over union account books, financial books. Clary once um, says, well, you know, I'm being instructed by my members not to disclose, not to hand over and disclose their members' union funds, and I abide by the, by the instruction of my members, and this court does not represent the interests 
of my members. That he, he, he just wouldn't answer any questions. And for that, John Kerr apparently was quite ropeable, and so he sentenced him to indefinite jail term immediately. I'll just go one step further, uh, sorry, one step back. When all the preparations were made, and, and it was decided for Clary to come out of, out of hiding and to front the court on the 15th, I think it was 8 o'clock on the morning of the 15th before he was due to front at the court at 9 o'clock. A mass meeting was held at Festival Hall, which was a packed meeting. There were 5,000 unionists there. Clary spoke there, and speech was received in all. There were students there, there were unions who were pledging to support Clary, whatever it takes. And then they all marched to the court. I was there. But there were six to 7,000 marching with Clary. So there was a very, very, very strong anger or sentiment to support Clary. And when they, when they were marching to the court, they were cha- chanting all the way with Clary O'Shea, which was a take on a couple of years before then when LBJ, the Lyndon Johnson, was here in Australia. And Australia was then, was that, the, you know, when the conscription was introduced, Australian troops were being sent to, to Vietnam, but in Vietnam, and it was in um, LBJ, the president of America, visited Australia, quite a big protest in Melbourne and in other states, particularly by young people opposing conscription, opposing Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War, and they were chanting all the way with LBJ, which was sort of um, an expression of Australia just following the US into a war. Well, as you've said, they were understandably angry, but I can imagine that anger must have increased whatever when they found out that he was being sentenced to indefinite prison. Yep. Within an hour, I mean, the word just... And mind you, there are no mobile phones then. <laughs> Within an hour, there were workers, there were probably thousands just in Melbourne and by the afternoon in other parts of Australia. There were thousands that downed tools, switched off machinery held stop work meetings, went out in the streets and pro- protesting. And it was right across Australia. So was, throughout that five-day period from Friday through to Wednesday, there were overall over a million workers and working people who were protesting, uh, demanding the release of Larry O'Shea and the repeal of the penal powers. So it, was, it wasn't just about Clary. It was clearly understood. It wasn't about this an individual. It was about the penal powers. What Larry did was to, his act highlighted the oppressive nature of the penal powers and why they should be matched. Were, um, I mean, I was in Melbourne at the time and as a part-time student and a part-time worker, so I was, I was at Monash University. Schools were abandoned, you know, students abandoned schools. They weren't in mass, mass numbers like, you know, we had over the climate change here with school students. But it was deep, at that particular time, there would have been hundreds of students, high school students that left school for protest. There were hundreds of university students. I remember talking afterwards to our local butcher, and he said that he closed down. The, the breweries closed down. The pubs closed down. There was somebody was telling me about the, the hotel in the Southern Cross. There used to be a hotel called the Southern Cross. Well, all the cleaners walked out. It was quite amazing. It was never, never anything like this happened in Australian history, in working class history. And there were 
protests in the streets. There were threats of indefinite strikes. You know, newspapers were, in fact, saying, well, you know, this is anarchy. You know, this could go on for weeks and months. The Victorian economy came to an almost standstill. So we had power shortages. There were blackouts. TV was only, I think the television in those five days were only operating for two hours. Public transport was at a a standstill. And in many ways it wasn't surprising when you look back on it because in the period building up to May 1969, from my experience it was a very, it was a well understood issue. So you go to your local milk but get milk and and you'd start to open up the conversation about how difficult it is with cost of living is going up, but the wages are not going up, and yet, you know, workers can't do anything about increasing our wages like we used to be able to do. And there will generate a discussion of half a dozen people who might be in the mill class. There's a very deep consciousness, understanding of the penal power. So, I mean, that's what I mean, that the actual strike itself was the culmination of many years of work. So about Wednesday morning, I think it was, I don't know, 9 o'clock or whenever, Suddenly was announced that Clary O'Shea is being released from jail and that his and his union fine had been paid by somebody rather McDougall who had won a lottery ticket, Douglas McDougall, and this Douglas McDougall was so concerned about the disruption to Australia's economy that he decided that he's going to pay the fine and that Clary would immediately be released. Later, was learnt, um, and that's what Clary was told, that it was actually paid by Asia, that Asia, big hand. Uh, the government was so concerned about the impact of the withdrawal of labour on the, on the economy and the bosses were just hitting the panic button. So it was decided to pay, pay Clary's fine. So neither Clary nor the union paid one cent of the fine. But it went even further in that the fines on other unions were dropped, and that was out of the fear that they didn't want to repeat of that struggle that emanated from Clary refusing to pay the fines, because it would have been obvious that other unions wouldn't pay the fines as well, and you would have had the repeat of momentous adverse struggles. I suppose the next step was to agitate to get the penal powers reversed. Well, they tried. What it did is that it, it, it sent such fear into the ruling class government and big business that they didn't dare to use the penal powers again in the immediate sense. They were never repealed. The penal powers were never repealed, were never taken off the books. But in fact, 10 years later, nine, less than 10 years later, in 1977, they were brought back but in a different disguise. And this done under the, the secondary boycott aspects of the old penal powers came back in a, in a different disguise the secondary boycott, the Trades Practices Act, which prohibited and fined unions for taking action in solidarity with each other. That was the beginning of the returning, bringing back the penal uh, You know, they were never sort of uh, abolished as such. They were always there. And I think that can be said about all these sort of anti-worker and anti-union laws, anti-democratic laws. They're never abolished. They just sit there and brought back when they needed that when they needed to be used. But nevertheless, it showed the power of the union. Absolutely, I mean, it's, and you know, and that's the reason why you had that period after the '69 struggle. There was militancy. There was much more confidence in struggle, struggle at the grassroots, struggle on the ground. I should say too, 
Humphrey, in his talk, is going to mention about role that Hawke had played after that struggle as ACTU president or secretary, whatever he was at that time. But I'll, I'll leave that to maybe have a discussion another time. Nevertheless, it wasn't a good one. No, no, no. It was after that that there was a monk from the ACTU. He was the president of the ACTU or secretary. He was retiring and he had somebody else in mind to take over. And then suddenly Hawke's name came up. I don't know the actual sequence of events, but there was somebody from the US Embassy that had met, I'm not sure whether it was Monk or some, or from the ACTU. In any event, this person from the US Embassy met and suggested that Hawke would make a better, a better secretary of the ACTU. And this, so the story goes that after that, and we, we know what the situation then arose, how the ACTU and the Labor Party just took a real strong control of the union movement. I think one of the most significant lessons of the Middle Power struggle is it was the fact that the unions and workers took an independent position, independent of the ALP, independent of the courts, independent of the government. They relied on their own strength. It's again, it bodes really well, I think, for us now here with um, one the elections are over, is where does the Change the Rules campaign go? Do we then just hand it over to the ALP or do we we step up the campaign to change the rules? But, it, but the campaign is independent of the ALP and it's independent of relying on Parliament and relying on courts and relying on, on paying the fine. One of the things about the Clary O'Shea struggle too is that you know, unions in the, or the militant unions in Clary, for them, you know, ending up in jail was part of doing your job. It's what you do fighting for workers. And it's a prize that a militant worker or union official paid. And in fact, it was worn as a badge of honour because you're fighting for the working class. And for them, going to jail was never about this or that individual, but it was always about your class, about ordinary people. So... I think that kind of set of mind, that, that political consciousness, that class consciousness, has given the courage and the confidence to people like Clary and the others. The other thing about Clary and the likes of Ted Bull and Paddy Malone, Paddy Malone was with the, the Douglas Labourers and Ted Bull with um, the Wolfies, is that they had an immense confidence in the power of mobilised working class. They had a lot of experience in, in struggle that gave them that. And they had confidence that they could win this battle through mass struggle. And, you know, that's exactly what had happened. I'll read this couple of things for you that it says. So on his release from jail, he said, this statement came at 11.30 when he walked out, my release is a great victory for the workers, working people and all other Democrats who have stood up against the shackling of the workers' struggle. I should like to congratulate everyone in Australia who has played and is playing a part in this magnificent struggle. I am certain that all workers remain adamant in their opposition to the penal powers which are designed to suppress workers. They will carry on the struggle. My imprisonment and release were only a small part of the much bigger question of oppression of the workers. I will try to play my full part in bringing it to an end. It is perfectly clear that the employers and the government have found that the vice extricate themselves from the dilemma 
in which they have got themselves by imprisonment me in an attempt to intimidate the workers. Neither the tramway union nor I have paid one penny of the fines, and nor will we ever do so. The infamous power of the workers when they are really aroused has frightened the life out of the government and the employers, and it will go on to greater victory. Therefore, I am certain the workers, working people, and all Democrats will continue to struggle for the abolition of all penal power. And then another one that he says, which is really quite, quite powerful, he says, if the workers confine themselves merely to economic questions, they confine themselves in a very narrow sphere. It is necessary to go further than mere economic questions. For myself, I believe you must end capitalism altogether. It is all coming to a great fight, and I believe the workers and the working people must prepare for that. For this. And that kind of gives you sort of an insight in, into Clary, into his thinking. He called himself a communist, you know, Marxist Leninist, and he used to say, being a communist Marxist Leninist, this is in quotes, made me a better trade union official. I think there's probably something that could be said about that period as well. One last little thing, which is the the interconnection, the connection between the penal power struggle and the anti-Vietnam War struggle. And you had the in, the anti-Vietnam War struggle that sort of started about well about 1966 against conscription, where there were young young men who were refusing to register, were going into hiding. It was a real period of rebellion, and that gave heart and confidence, I think to particularly the militant unions and the more militant workers. But that also had an impact and influence on the thinking of unions at that time, that defines, that strength of defying the injustice. At the same time, you had unions that, that in that period were very active in the anti-Vietnam War movement. They were very active in the moratorium movement. You know, and there was a lot of leadership from unions in the Vietnam War movement. And that gave confidence to young, also to anti-Vietnam War activists. They both gave strength and confidence to each other's action. We can't talk about this kind of event in isolation. And that whole period in the 1960s had an enormous impact on shaking up the sacred cows of capital. Just finally, Shirley, will there still be room for latecomers if they I'll haven't be- booked yet to come tomorrow night? This year, the fifth. 50- our 50th year anniversary of Clary Shea and the Penal Powers is being um, celebrated on Wednesday night, the uh, 15th of May, that's tomorrow night. There's still room for people to come. It will be held at the, at the Newport substation, which is in Mason Street. It is right next door to Newport Railway Station. So people coming by train, it is... Right, you'll see all the signs directing you there. It's only about less than five minutes walk from the railway station. And it's called the, the substation and it's one market street. It's $10. If people can't afford that, that's fine. There's still room. Between 5.30 and 6.30, the doors open. There's going to be a great display of that period. So we've got photographs. There's a historical play of the, of, of the secrets of the events. We've got some quotes from Clary O'Shea, quotes from, from different unions. The proceedings start, or the speeches will start at 6.30. Before the speeches, the trade union choir will sing the International. Then there will be speeches, in, including Humphrey McQueen. And 
interspersed between speeches. There will be there won't be long speeches. Two speeches, ten minutes each, and the others are five minutes each. Interspersed among them, there's the the trade union choir, which sings some songs that were composed during that period, in that period, before the Clarion and the struggle against the penal powers. There'll be uh, a poem recited as well called Who Holds the Key, which again is about the penal powers. It'll be a really good night, so we welcome people. The event is being organised jointly by and hosted jointly by the Rail, Tram and Bus Union and Spirit of Eureka on the 50th anniversary. If people want to find out more about it, I'll give them the phone number. It's 0417-456-001. Thanks, Shirley. Thanks, Jan. And that was Shirley Winton from Spirit of Eureka. And I'll just give you those details again. It is tomorrow evening. It begins at 5.30. It goes until 8.30. And that's the Newport... It's next to the Newport Railway Station. It's called the Newport Substation. I'm sure it'd be pretty easy to find just near the Newport Railway Station. As Shirley said, there'll be speakers, information, historical displays, the trade union choir, finger food and drinks, and the speakers start at 6.30. So if you get there between 5.30 and 6.30, there's finger food and drinks. They're charging $10 just to cover the costs, but if you, Shirley said, if you don't have $10, that's fine. There's no compulsion to pay. So that's the 50th anniversary of the great Clary O'Shea and penal powers struggle tomorrow evening at the Newport substation. We Need to Pay the Rent is a fundraiser for warriors of the Aboriginal resistance featuring the Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We need to pay the rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. Free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Contact organisers online to arrange. A 3CR supporter. And as I said earlier, it's exactly four weeks to Tuesday Home Times Radiothon. And I do hope that regular and even irregular listeners to this program will ring in on the day. You can do it earlier. Lots of ways you can do it. The best way in the next couple of weeks is to ring the station on 94198377 to get the details of how you can donate particularly to Tuesday Home Time. The 3CR Radiothon is fast approaching. And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio. That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019 
June the 3rd to the 16th. Power Radical Radio. The Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition is holding a free conference on the 10th of July at the Greek Orthodox Church, 23-29 to 29 Victoria Street, Coburg. The conference will take a look at whether the Aussie Fair Go still matters, ask why there's a crisis of trust in politicians and institutions and question why public welfare services are increasingly private and costly. We'll also consider what action we can take to build the future we want. Limited places are available and bookings before the 10th of June are essential. Email eventsfgfpvictoria at gmail.com or call 0477-236-880. Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition, free conference, 10th of July in Coburg. A 3CR supporter. And coming up right now, commentary by activist Joan Coxage. Only a few days to go before we cast our votes for the barely okay or for the hell of a lot worse, and I'll let you nut that one out for yourselves. Either way, the rorts and inequalities will continue, with the rich getting richer and the rest of us getting slugged for the basics like gas, electricity, transport and water that were once in public hands, but were sold off by public record Jeff Kennett. We don't nurture our land, but allow the road lobby to do what it likes, cutting a swathe through precious Aboriginal sites and ancient trees and places of natural beauty. Climate change? Barely rated a mention. Homeless people in aged care? Ignored. Money talks, and big money talks even louder. The world as a whole, is, whole isn't looking too flash, an understatement for chaos. Fresh catastrophes just keep coming, some natural and some decidedly not. Headlined for a day before another nightmare comes along to take its place. The only thing that's made me laugh out loud recently was the Ukrainian election, which was won by a comedian, a fair dinkum comedian. Why not? When you cast your eyes around the world's leaders, they certainly qualify as clowns. Not funny ones, though, just cynical caricatures who dish out crap and like to act tough. To impress the war-hungry clown who inhabits the White House and the crazy clowns who surround him? Even when Trump goes, he'll be replaced with another malevolent idiot because they're the ones who get the big gigs, especially in the US of A., like corporate toady Joe Biden, who's put his hand up to, quote, rescue the Democrats from Bernie Sanders, for God's sake. Yet another issue or set of issues whited out in this manipulated election campaign that is not a mention of foreign affairs and defence and our grovelling relationship with our Yankee overlords. Some of you are probably sick of hearing about Julian Assange, but you shouldn't be, because that's what the powers that be want. So a few more facts about his incarceration in Britain's maximum security Belmarsh prison its Guantanamo Bay wouldn't hurt, and the knowledge that the slimy English magistrate who put him there is the same one who stopped a private prosecution of Tony Blair for war crimes. Assange has not allowed any visitors, including from his doctors and lawyers, despite needing urgent medical care. Forget the side issues. He's being held in appalling conditions for exposing US war crimes, for being a journalist. 
A few weeks ago, the American Civil Liberties Union noted that, and I'll quote them, criminally prosecuting a publisher for the publication of truthful information would be a first in American history and unconstitutional and would open the door to criminal investigations of other news organisations, end of quote. The manufactured FBI indictment contains no evidence No documents and no genuine testimony, but was concocted by the Pentagon's shadowy cyber counterintelligence assessments branch. On the 2nd of May, Julian Assange appeared in custody at Westminster Magistrates Court for a preliminary extradition hearing, and the US has swiftly requested his extradition, as you will not be surprised to hear. But he could be in UK jails for years if the extradition is contested in court. While the Ecuadorian, British and US governments flagrantly violate their own laws by persecuting Julian, individuals and civil society organisations are mobilising to defend him. Friend and public advocate Pamela Anderson and WikiLeaks editor-in-chief paid Julian a visit and were appalled at his plight, telling reporters that Assange is stuck in his cell for 23 hours a day with only 30 minutes allotted to go outside, weather permitting, and 30 minutes to do anything else, whatever that means, but no contact with his children or having access to a computer or to a library. This is not justice. This is an abomination. Concerns from the Australian government or Labor opposition, not so much as a peep. We shouldn't be too surprised at the lack of justice in the the British judicial system. It's been going on for a very long time. That great social filmmaker Mike Lee has shone a spotlight on the 1819 Peterloo Massacre when fewer than 3% of British people had the vote and the industrial city of Manchester didn't even have a Member of Parliament. 200 years ago, a coalition of 60,000 reformers and revolutionaries converged on St Peter's Field to hear Henry Hunt call for universal franchise. It was a time of high prices and declining wages, failed strikes, unemployment and empty stomachs. Local magistrates called in the troops to attack the crowd and 18 were killed and 700 were injured with sabres, swords and horses' hooves. It caused outrage and became known as the Peterloo Massacre, the name and echo of Waterloo, where Britain had defeated Napoleon only four years earlier, smashing the universal principles of the French Revolution, liberty, equality and fraternity. And at home it took away the commons from local communities by way of enclosure acts and used military conquest everywhere else. A brutal action that nevertheless spurred on the birth of a radical movement, including the founding of the Manchester Guardian, and when the rabble became politicised and was transformed into a disciplined working class, terrifying the ruling class of landlords, merchants, bankers and factory owners and the aristocracy. Lee's film is about this important act of resistance when revolution was possible. A must-see film in today's bad times when we urgently need fundamental change, especially when we see how Trump and his cabal are doing everything possible to wind back former treaties and alliances enshrining progressive international law. A free press? You're kidding. The aim of these thugs in suits is to dissuade investigative journalists from, from investigating, 
beat them up and locks them up as an example to others who might still want to write the truth about American barbarism. And journalists and governments are watching and taking note. The deep state has gone ballistic, especially after WikiLeaks published the Vault 7 files detailing the CIA's gigantic hacking cyber espionage repertoire, including the activities of the ultra-secret Centre for Cyber Intelligence, its NSA counterpart. There is every reason to believe that Assange will be hit with far more serious charges once he lands on US soil. They're not going to all this bother to put him away for five years, but are clearly intent on setting a legal precedent to enable a US government to imprison any journalist who steps out of line. Never before in my long life have I seen such a belligerent United States. Jimmy Carter agrees. He said, the most warlike nation in the history of the world. Vice President Mike Pence recently told the UN Security Council that the White House intends removing Venezuelan President Maduro from power with, quote him, all options on the table, adding that Russia and other friends of Maduro need to leave now or face the consequences. The crisis in Venezuela could become global as Russia gears up for war. Last week it was Venezuela in America's gun sights, but after Venezuela's army supported their president, it's back to Iran. Trump's fanatical security adviser John Bolton has ordered the USS Abraham Lincoln and its bomber force to the Middle East to send a clear and unmistakable message to the Iranian regime that any attack on US interests or those of our allies will be met with unrelenting force after being alerted by Israel. And it's a worry when taken together with, with those other influential White House nutcases, Pompey and Pence. According to Pompey, my faith in Jesus Christ makes a real difference and God may have sent Trump to save Israel from Iran. Evangelical Christians? Bizarre doesn't even get close. Often poorly educated, they believe in the rapture and that we are in the end times, and while they whoosh off to heaven, the rest of us will endure the tribulation. They're certainly doing their damnedest to make it happen, supporting war in Yemen, where huge numbers of people are dying of mutilation, starvation and cholera, and where a simple phone call could stop the war. And there's butchery in Afghanistan, massive killings in Syria, the bombing of Somalis and torture chambers around the world, for all our sakes, the Trump mob should be locked up and put into straitjackets. And it's astounding when you think about it that a US vice president can openly state that he is loyal to another country. If Israel wants war with Iran for no reason, so does Mike Pence. Millions could die for a crazy theology with the spiritual legitimacy of the Hare Krishnas or the Mormons. On top of that, Bolton's financial disclosure listed a $40,000 payment for a speech he gave in 2016 to an Iranian exile group dedicated to overthrowing the government in Tehran, which for many years the US had listed as a terrorist group due to its campaign of bombings and assassinations. So as a welcome antidote to all this lunacy, I came across an article by George Burchett, son of the famous Wilfred, who recently attended the 70th anniversary of the founding of Ho Chi Minh's School of Writing and Journalism, some 80 kilometres north of Hanoi. 
1949, resistance against the French colonists backed by U.S. imperialists was almost impossible. In that year, 49 young students were trained as lecturers, including the famous General Giap, in revolutionary journalism so they could contribute to their country's struggle for independence and liberty. Uncle Ho's principles? Know why you write and who you write for. Be succinct. Get your facts straight. Don't use complicated language. Believe in what you write. Revolutionary journalism is only possible when truth is on your side. Then the pen is indeed mightier than the sword. And when words serve a just cause, no army can defeat them. Good afternoon. And it's many thanks to activist, former politician, Joan Coxidge, and we'll welcome Joan back to the program about this time next month. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Great Voices CDs on 3CR. These CDs are a unique collection. Now you can go to 3cr.org.au and you can order online all the 20 CDs, 15 issues, for $160 postage pay. Or check the individual issues and read each track on it. Every major singer is on there. You'll be excited and entranced. Go to 3cr.org.au now and check out the wonderful Great Voices CDs. And now the second part of my interview with Australian peace activist Dale Hess. Can you talk a bit more about what it was like in South Africa at that time? Well, the... South African government was uh, trying to crack down on any resistance. There were official investigations, inquiries, commissions, uh, and Quakers were testifying at the Celia Commission, for example, that uh, there was a better way to do this work, that nonviolence offered an opportunity to uh, actually meet the needs of the people. There were blacks were forced out of the cities and, and uh, forced to live in squatter camps around Cape Town, for example, uh, and basically uh, they were starving. And so Quakers were able to provide food to these camps, which caused um, the, the police to arrest those that were providing food and interrogate them and so that there was you know some danger in doing this 
they were able to provide medical assistance. The Quakers in Cape Town bought a, an ambulance and set up a network with doctors uh, who were willing to treat people off the books. Uh, what would happen is that the police would come in and just spray bullets everywhere, and anyone who was shot was obviously uh, a terrorist. And so the Quakers were able to provide a, a way for people who were injured to, to get medical assistance without repercussions from the police. Uh, also provided the ambulance in, in times of that there weren't uh, the raids from the police because uh, there just wasn't any transport so that pregnant women, for example, had to walk uh, many kilometers to health clinics uh, to have a baby, for example, and the ambulance was able to provide them with transportation. It must be pretty difficult as a pacifist to go into a situation of such violence in South Africa. It is it's difficult for anybody, really, because violence was affecting everybody. And to be able to try to see what little steps can be taken in positive ways to try to provide alternatives to the violence is a real challenge. And the Quakers are only a small group, and so they needed the support of one another to continue because it's very easy to feel that you are facing such overwhelming odds. Were you targeted as well? I wasn't because I was just there for a, a short period of time, but I was very privileged to be in the company of people like Paul Hare, who was professor of sociology at the University of Cape Town, and he was able to make uh, some significant contributions in trying to overcome violence. What about West Papua? There's been a lot of violence, a lot of killings, a lot of people being injured in fighting there. Yes. Um, we went in January of 2015. It was just uh, a few weeks after the the killing of uh, six teenagers in uh, Penai, and we went to Penai and stayed uh, in the village there and were able to uh, feel the tension and the uh, danger that the Papuans face, and so it was very real. Were you tolerated? Is that what it would have been by the military, the Indonesian military? We weren't sure what the, the military were, were going to do while we were there. I mean, there, there are people who inform, they inform the intelligence agencies and the military. And so while we were there in, in Penai, uh, there was word came out that the, the military were going to make a raid on where we were. But it turned out that that didn't happen. But when we were in Biak, we were raided by the intelligence and immigration people. And um, we, we were, uh, had to go to the office of the immigration people for interrogation. What was the outcome of that? Well, they, they basically were worried that we might be journalists. And so after 
a couple of hours of interrogation, we were released when they found that they could find no evidence that we were journalists. There's no repercussions for the local people with you being there? There are always dangers, and one of the local people in Biak was arrested and held for a couple of days, but then he was released. And so you just don't know what the consequences will be. I'd imagine, though, you would have heard some stories about how the people are being treated. We have, uh, and, and, you know, it's very uh, hard to hear the stories of the brutality and, and the torture and oppression that people have to live with all the time. A different situation in North Korea, South Korea? In Korea, we didn't experience any um, difficulties. Uh, we were on a, a tour that uh, we, we told them that we were interested in sustainable agriculture, that the American Friends Service Committee had had a project there to assist in uh, agriculture, and we wanted to visit the farm that they uh, had been working at. And after a long time, got permission to do this, not only to visit one farm, but three farms and the Institute for Vegetable Science. And so they saw that we were interested in something that was important to them because they recognized how dependent they are on agriculture, how difficult it is to, for them to grow enough food. The, the dangers of climate change and so they were very willing for us to make these visits to the farms. And it's made a great deal of difference, negative difference to agriculture with the sanctions. There is some severe shortages which are made worse because of the sanctions. The, the sanctions on fuel, on petrol, uh, on on natural gas, so that energy is a problem. There is also sanctions on machinery, so there are very few tractors, for example. Um, what tractors are there are, are quite old, so most of the work is all done by hand, and very back-breaking kind of work. Yeah, it's it just they haven't been able to produce enough grain to provide the necessary nutrients to feed the people. Will there be a follow-up from that trip? We hope so. We, we hope to have a, a trip that, that goes there in June. We've been seeking permission and we're still waiting to hear uh, if this will happen. What about your connections with peace and anti-war groups here in Melbourne? Well, I'm involved with uh, a group called Pax Christi, which is a, an ecumenical peace group. I'm also involved with Pache Bene, which is a nonviolence training group involved with the Quakers. I'm involved with the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Those are sort of the main groups that I'm involved with. It sounds as though that would take up a fair bit of your time. It does, that's right. Tell me when you started your online announcements and what you hope to achieve with that. This was a result of an educational experiment that was undertaken as an initiative from Pax Christi. 
series of lectures and uh, exercises over 10 weeks, course called Our World in Crisis. And, and this went on for a number of years. Uh, I was able to provide some voluntary assistance for that program. And as part of that, I uh, then started sending out emails to try to show and uh, raise some awareness about various issues. What are your sources? Well, a variety of sources that I find on the Internet. Uh, there's not just one source, but many. So some of them are church-based sources. Some of them are university-based sources. Others are organizations that look at foreign policy. Could you give an example of maybe the last one that you posted? The Foreign Policy in Focus is a website um, that has a number of, of articles. Um, I had one about uh, the burning down of the Highlander training camp. This is in Tennessee in the uh, United States. Uh, it, was, it was a place where Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, and, and many others had training, but has been targeted over these past 50 years by the Ku Klux Klan and other groups uh, in, in the area, and they just recently burned down the main building. And if people would like to receive your announcements? Well, they, they can send me an email, d.hess at ozemail.com.au. Just finally, Dale, what do you see as the most pressing issue at this moment? Well, the issues of climate change and nuclear weapons are both extremely urgent and also global implications. Beyond that, there's the issue of the economy and, and how to have an economic system that is just because the combination of politics and the economy drives issues like nuclear weapons and the problems with climate change. And I'll be speaking there to Dale Hest. That was the second part of a, a longer interview I recorded with Dale a couple of weeks ago. And if things go well, he might be or one of the other members of the the Quaker movement here in Australia will be going back to North Korea to hopefully work with the farming communities in that country who are suffering greatly because mainly because of the, the US sanctions against lots of things that they need on the farms including fuel and machinery and forcing the people to do really hard back-breaking work as he pointed out in that interview so hopefully that will happen in the next little while and we'll be able to get Dale back on the program. You are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. This is Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett and um, we're coming up to nearly the end of the program but we'll be hearing shortly from Debbie Brennan talking about a book coming up about women in the 70s breaking into the electrical trades in Seattle, the United States. Mm-hmm. 
My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family. And even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. On Thursday the 23rd of May, Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party are hosting the launch of High Voltage Women, a fascinating history written by a community labour historian about women breaking into the electrical trades in the 1970s in Seattle, USA. The author is Ali Bellow, and I asked Debbie Brennan first what she knows about Ali and her previous works. Ellie Ballou, uh, she describes herself as a community historian. She's also a novelist. And her idea of community is people with common interests. And that's how she approaches her writing. And that's what gives her writing an amazing vibrancy because she thinks of her readership as part of the community as well, and she sees the connections between different parts of history, different eras, different struggles of history. She's one who makes connections, and I think that's part of what makes her work so readable and riveting as High Voltage Women is, and I think also that she just has a way of connecting not only with the people she, whose stories she's telling, but her audience. And she has, I felt, a real consideration for the reader because with the history that she's putting forward for you, it could be quite complex and convoluted if written by someone else. But she has a way of not only conveying it, bringing it across as a story, but she doesn't overload you. She structures it in a way where she gives other pieces of important information alongside the story, whether it be something that's a bar down the side of a page or an appendix or something else. That's Ellie Ballou. Her story is from the city of Seattle. This would have been one of the battles of the second wave feminism in the U.S.? Yeah, she she gives a good, she tells you the background of it, and it certainly is. It's a fight that occurred within Seattle City Light, which was and still is a public utility, and this was in the mid-1970s. So it follows those wonderfully tumultuous, you know, 1960s. 
But she also explains that coming out of the civil rights movement of the 60s was what came about as affirmative action. And affirmative action simply meaning that it's a way to redress a history of discrimination, whether it be in employment or services or whatever. And it's when you have people of equal eligibility for something, but you choose the person from a particular discriminated against group. So affirmative action came out of the civil rights movement, obviously for African Americans and people of color. But affirmative action also applies to any other discriminated group. And this, the, the discriminated group that was going to be pioneering a program to break into an otherwise segregated workforce were women. So it was a, a program that came out of that history of women, multiracial, some were out lesbians, some were single mothers, they were all either poor or low income, they were like a microcosm of working class women who otherwise wouldn't have had a hope of getting into the electrical trades without this program. And they also hired Clara Fraser, who was a well-known community organizer, to design this program and to, to carry it through. What was the significance of Seattle for this action to break down the barriers of discrimination? Of course, affirmative action was something that was being mandated all around the country. Even the president at the time was talking about it. And uh, in the 1970s, Seattle City Light was seeking you know, funding for any number of infrastructure projects but they were told that if they were that, that funding would be contingent upon their introducing uh, or stepping up on affirmative action there because their workforce was well and truly segregated it was white male a classic craft kind of industry um, well paid quite privileged so that's why they were singled out, well, not singled out, they were certainly um, identified as a public utility with that kind of a workplace and a real problem to be stepping up on the, on the affirmative action. What about the city of Seattle itself? It's known as a progressive city? Yes, yes it is. And it has a very progressive history. It's got a very militant working class history. And so Seattle itself, I guess you could say like so many other places and things, was quite contradictory. So while definitely a progressive city, you still have these throwbacks like Seattle City Light that were existing there. You've identified Clara. How many other women were there and what were their specific backgrounds? Clara herself, besides being um, a well-known community activist, she was a, um, a well-known socialist feminist leader. So she had helped found in the mid-1960s both Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party. She herself had been targeted by, you know, McCarthyism, blackness. She's got a, a really strong political history and a very strong labor history and community history. So that's Clara. 
the the women who became what was called electrical trades trainees or um, called ETPs, they were 10 women who elected out of about 300 applicants. And they were any kind of, they were sort of, some were not so politically active where others were politically active. Three of the ETTs were um, members of radical women in the Freedom Socialist Party. A couple of other ETTs were activists in the, the LGBTIQ movement, um, the civil rights movement, and then there were others who were not politically active at all. They, again, they were hired to be the first women brought into the electrical trades, and Clara had designed a program for this. So their purpose was for to basically pioneer women coming into an all-male industry. They were to be trained in these new skills and basically break the ground. And so Seattle City Light Management, they were quite happy to hire Clara Fraser to design and carry out such a program. The thing is, though, that once they really got their heads around what affirmative action, like genuine affirmative action, actually means, they fought it all the way. They got from these 10 women and Clara Fraser, they got more than what they bargained for. They were head-to-head against very strong women. And so the whole story of high-voltage women that Ellie Ballou recounts, it's a tough story. It's, it's a story of women having to fight really hardened sexism, racism, and homophobia within that industry, not only from management, but of course in such an industry. Unfortunately, those were the attitudes that were crusted on among many of the workers and sadly including members of the union, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. They were up against a lot. And it was a vicious fight, actually, and the women had to be incredibly tough and strong, like they had a daily existence of going into work facing anything from ridicule and innuendos and harassment to being put into very dangerous situations, and hazing was a big part of their their daily experience. It was life-threatening, and um, just to give only a, a couple of many, many examples. Two of the ETTs were seriously injured. Hadi Durham, who was under extreme pressure to be running up and down the, you know, the telephone poles. They were in the linesman work, and that's the most dangerous work there is. She was under pressure to be fast. And, of course, this is while their, their whole program was being cut and sabotage their training being cut and everything else by management. What happened to Heidi one day was that she she fell. She fell several meters. She broke her back. She was hospitalized for over a year. She had to fight to come back 
into her job, not as a linesman, but as a um, as someone in an important um, office position because she was diagnosed for the rest of her life. Um, she could have died. Another example is Terry, who was tied with electrical tape and thrown into a, a crew um, cab and left there and had to find her way out. On another occasion, she actually got injured very badly and broke her neck. She miraculously recovered. So these are just some examples of what the women were facing and, of course, the ostracism that they faced because of the, the, the sexism, the racism, the homophobia, and the, the absolute resentment and resistance that existed in a segregated workforce where the, the men, or a lot of the men, not all of them, of course, felt that the women just did not belong there and they were going to be taught a lesson or two. Mind you, they were up against things, but the women also had a marvelous way of resisting as well. Just wondering about the, the men who were training these women. They must have resented them greatly, yet they were forced, I suppose, to train them. Did they train um, them properly? Well, see, the problem is with their program, the 10 women actually, within a year, they were sacked, and their, their program was discontinued by management. So problem was not only the, the men with this resentment that they had to work with, but the management that was scuttling the program from day one. So what management did was they cut the training time. They cut it out altogether. They cut the funding. They backtracked. They did every kind of overt and covert thing that management knows to do when they're trying to set a program up to fail. And they sacked these women. And they sacked Clara Fraser as well. It took the women two years to fight and get their jobs back, their their um, traineeships back. And it took Clara eight years to get her job back. And that's another part of the story, by the way, that they won. They won because, and this goes back to your question about the men, there were men who supported them. And the men who supported them were men of color because Men of color knew exactly what these women were going through. They had trickled into that industry, not as part of an affirmative action program. They just got in one by one, and they were up against a lot, too. So there was solidarity that these men showed to the trainees and to, um, and to Clara Fraser in their fight, but also the fact that there were Ten women and Clara having to battle this out together, that produced sort of a uh, kind of a critical mass that um, kept spreading. So they had enormous solidarity from the feminist community, from the union community who backed and supported their legal fight, but also supported their fight on the ground. So it was an amazing campaign an amazing battle that, that they fought. And this book is a book of lessons for us today. You said 
near the beginning that this that this company was directed to bring in affirmative action, if they stymied it or disrupted it to the point that the women were no longer there, how did they get the money that they were after to keep their business going? Yeah, they were kind of walking a tightrope. Again, you, you, you get an idea from the story that Ellie Ballou recounts that, um, for example, the, the, the one behind this is a guy called Gordon Vickery, who was quite a piece of work from what I can tell. I think we all know our Gordon Vickery's. Um, he was having to, well, basically explain himself. But while he was doing that, there were managers that were coming and going. So you can imagine how uh, there would be those within management who were all part of scuttling this program who would be the fall guys. So in order to to walk this this tightrope of getting funding while you're killing, sabotaging and killing this program that you were mandated to do, they were basically beating each other up as the um, excuses as to why something wasn't happening. But mainly, mainly, they were blaming the women for the failure of the program before it was reinstituted. And that is the classic game. Um, the real scapegoats are the women themselves. They were blamed for, for being incompetent, being too slow. Heidi was blamed for her fall. Uh, Clara Fraser was was accused of being inept. So I, I think probably we all kind of can relate to that. Any of us who have either witnessed or who have experienced victimization on the job, we know all of those those tricks. That's how the management danced around. Vickery eventually went off to another, you know, life and others came in and it was quite a kaleidoscope of activity. When was the decision made to take the fight to the courts? At the very beginning, so for example, when the ETTs were sacked and when Clara was sacked, they took sex discrimination cases to the court and that was of course, a major fight. Any of us who have faced such things would appreciate what that involves. They had to really do a lot of their legwork on that. They became quite skilled in that. But they also had a lot of pro bono work being done by, by feminists and um, by certain unionists and others on the left who worked with them through that. So yes, that legal work started from from the beginning and the book gives you an idea of how, you know, all encompassing that was where, you know, they, they had to in the e, the ETTs who were um, particularly those who were members of Radical Women in the FSP who were having to absolutely study every single document, everything that came across in terms of dotting T's, crossing I's, reading between lines, see what's missing, see what you need to fight to have put back in. It was really very, you know, intensive work. Did all the women stay the course? 
not all, a couple of them left the program mainly because, well, they had to, like one of them, an African-American um, woman uh, who was a single mother of five kids, when all of this was going on, she just, she had to find another job and she, she found another job as a bus driver. There was a, a, another woman who, you know, for very practical reasons, couldn't see it out as well. There was one woman, one of the ETTs from the very get-go, who didn't want to be a part. She, she didn't want to be part of the solidarity at all. She was doing her own individual things. So she, she broke ranks from them at the very beginning and, you know, did her own climbing up the ladder herself. So, but in the end, I think it was like about six of them. In fact, it was six of them who fought it out throughout and ended up being getting their positions as uh, line workers and making it to the status of, of journeymen, which was quite an accomplishment. How did their struggle influence others to take on the system? Yes, that's a, that's a, a really important point, and that's the importance of this book, because it was inspiring to others. And so as we can imagine in the United States, just as here, we only have to sort of substitute United States for here to know what massive battles were going on. And so these women who broke ground, not only in getting into a, a non-traditional trade for women, but also were breaking ground in terms of showing how you, you fight, others we're watching and taking it on board. And I think the question that you asked is important also for us today. This book is riveting. And the reason that it's riveting, like I read it in one sitting, it was so riveting, is that not, a, not only does it resonate, but it teaches. And I've got to say that while I was reading it, I had the chemist warehouse strike in my head throughout because while Chemist Warehouse, that strike wasn't a strike to break into a into an industry that you had previously been shut out of, but the Chemist Warehouse was an example of an industry that brings in women and people of color as the cheap labor. And of course you're there as that cheap labor, but the workers of Chemist Warehouse fought a very, very inspiring battle, too. And so to read high-voltage women, even now, in the time of neoliberalism, in the time of victimization and sackings and exclusion and everything else, it's a book for these times, so it's inspiring for us today. Well, what you've been talking about is the 1970s, and I want to bring you through to the 21st century, and this is a, an article I found that all has not been going smoothly for the women employed at City Light. Mm. In, in 2017, the city of Seattle agreed to pay $375,000 to three of four female employees who claimed harassment, discrimination, and sexual complaints going back to 2014. 
So they didn't learn their lesson properly, did they? That's correct. So where we have this, this resistance going on from day one by management who just weren't getting it, or else they were getting it and they didn't like it, we have affirmative action in the United States having been completely gutted by the late 1990s. And so we have kind of a replay to an extent in Seattle Citywide alone, and of course it's everywhere else, but in Seattle Citywide, just as you say, uh, sexual harassment has absolutely rife. And in fact, in here and now as we speak, there's a very inspiring campaign going on in Seattle Citywide called the Seattle Silence Breakers, who are, are putting up a huge fight exposing sexual harassment in that utility. And um, the continuum is there in terms of Radical Women is a part of the Seattle Silence Breakers campaign with some of those members having been involved in that earlier fight. So it's a fight that has not ended, as you say, but it's a fight that um, is still being fought with, you know, by the victims of that um, victimization um, with the same intensity. So it's a time of the Me Too movement, you know, where that fight is escalating and it's very important. Where is the book being launched? The book is going to be launched Thursday, the 23rd of May, so that's next week. It's going to be launched at the Electrical Trades Union, and we've had the support of the Electrical Trades Union uh, Women's Committee, which has been absolutely fantastic. And it's at 6 o'clock, so it's at 6 o'clock at the Electrical Trades Union, which is uh, 200 Arden Street, North Melbourne. And everybody is um, encouraged to come along. They'll get to hear Ellie Ballou, not in person, sadly, but there's a fabulous interview with her. And, um, of course, they can buy the book. I'm just wondering before you go, Debbie, whether women in maybe Victoria had similar problems getting into the, into the electrical industry. I would say yes. And I, I would say that this is behind the support that, that this book launch is getting from the, uh, from the Women's Committee. In fact, there are a number of unions, you know, the so-called non-traditional, you know, uh, industries, the unions of those industries that have women's committees. The reason for that being that they've had their battles breaking into these industries as well. So, this book would be resonating with all women who have who are working in these industries, whether it be construction or maritime or electrical or you know railways. It would be resonating with all women in those industries, but also everyone, even outside those industries. Me as a as a former teacher, it resonates with me too. Just finally, finally, Debbie, what was the detailed result of the, the chemist warehouse dispute? They won everything they went out for. So they won a pay rise 
of 18.75% because they had been paid well below the industry standard. They run permanency for the casual workers, and what's, I think, important about that win is that those casuals, the labor casuals who had been out on strike, immediately got permanency. The rest of the casual workforce will get permanency after six months. They also won on their demand to end sexual harassment. That was another issue behind that strike. And Chemist Warehouse has had to recognize that um, sexual harassment is an issue, and they have agreed to do, you know, training around sexual harassment. And they also won, the union won, time on the job to hold union meetings and for the delegates to have their rights as delegates. It was a colossal win. One thing I will um, add about the chemist warehouse strike is that because I was on the picket during that time, and what struck me was the the strength and the leading role of the women on those pickets. And the vast majority of workers, and of course the women workers, they're, they're migrant um, workers, and the militancy and the strength was absolutely inspiring. And from the first day, the question in their minds wasn't if they were going to win. It was just a matter of when they were going to win. They were determined. Good outcome. Thanks, Debbie. Yes. Thank you. And that was Debbie Brennan from both Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party. And the book she's been talking about is called High Voltage Women, Breaking Barriers at Seattle City Light by Ellie Ballou, B-E-L-E-W. Now, the launch, as Debbie said, is next Thursday, not this Thursday coming, but the 23rd of May at the ETU building at 200 Arden Street in North Melbourne and um, be there at 6pm for the launch of High Voltage Women. That's about all I have for today, but I'll go out with a couple of announcements and then it's time for Done By Law. We Need To Pay The Rent is a fundraiser for warriors of the Aboriginal resistance featuring the Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We need to pay the rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. Free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Contact organisers online to arrange. A 3CR supporter. The Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition is holding a free conference on the 10th of July at the Greek Orthodox Church, 23-29 Victoria Street, Coburg. 
The conference will take a look at whether the Aussie fair go still matters, ask why there's a crisis of trust in politicians and institutions and question why public welfare services are increasingly private and costly. We'll also consider what action we can take to build the future we want. Limited places are available and bookings before the 10th of June are essential. Email eventsfgfpvictoria at gmail.com or call 0477-236-880. Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition, free conference, 10th of July in Coburg. A 3CR supporter. As I said, that's all I have for the day. Do keep in mind the radio though, it's not too far away now. And if you want to save up, that's the time to do it now. Just give up a few of those coffees. A couple of weeks, three a week, you don't really need them, they're not good for your health. And put that money aside and donate to 3CR to keep our wonderful radio station on air. As I said, it's time to go. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. So it's bye for now and stand by for Dumb by Law. Bye for now.